This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 105, entitled, An Introduction to Matthew's Son of Man Christology. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Having spent the last half dozen episodes exploring the Christological title, Son of Man, in our earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, it is time to move on to the Gospel of Matthew. Most Gospel experts have discerned, correctly in my estimation, that Matthew came after Mark and used Mark's Gospel as a literary source. If this is the case, it would be interesting to see how Matthew continues Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the Son of Man. As we will soon see, Matthew had access to Son of Man material that Mark did not possess. So Matthew was able to complement Mark on this particular subject. This episode will introduce the Son of Man material in Matthew, and next week's episode will conclude our study within Matthew. Within the Son of Man sayings that Matthew included into his gospel, we can see a description of Jesus as one who has come. Is this a reference to having come down out of heaven? The Son of Man is also portrayed as speaking on behalf of God's wisdom. Is this an indicator that Matthew believed in the preexistence of Jesus? Furthermore, the Son of Man claims to be greater than Solomon and Jonah. Is this a claim to being the true God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the difficult life of the Son of Man. I'm reading a passage out of Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 19. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. In the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time that the Son of Man is mentioned. Since Matthew, as a narrator and a creative theologian, likes to organize Jesus' stories into clusters, I'm curious why this was placed as the first Son of Man saying. I'm curious if there is some discernible narrative strategy in placing this Son of Man story first. A scribe naively tells Jesus that he will follow him wherever he goes. Jesus lets the scribe know that while animals have places of residence where they go to sleep, the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. 
The implication is that those who choose to follow the Son of Man will also have nowhere to lay their head. The life of the Son of Man, and by extension the lives of his followers, whom he represents, will be a life of hardship. The Son of Man is to be a rejected figure, not one who is warmly welcomed into all of the towns and villages. The agent of God's dawning rule and reign appears to, in this opening Son of Man passage, be a figure that has a rough life ahead of him, filled with hardship and rejection. Matthew gives no indication that this Son of Man figure pre-existed in heaven, but Matthew retains the theology of Mark in that the Son of Man represents the fate of his human followers. For Matthew, Jesus' call to discipleship is both a summons to follow Jesus as well as a summons to think critically on who the Son of Man is. As the opening Son of Man saying in Matthew, it will be interesting to see how these subsequent sayings will continue to reveal things about the Son of Man. Let's move on and look at another one of those Son of Man passages. Our second point today is looking at the Son of Man as the rejected agent. I'm going to read a passage out of Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. This is an interesting Son of Man saying that appears in Matthew, but not in Mark. In commenting on the fact that his preaching of the kingdom gospel and his performing of the miracles that demonstrate the reign of God breaking into this age, Jesus indicates that the Son of Man is a rejected figure. In doing so, Jesus compares himself to another human being, to John the Baptist. Jesus notes that John the Baptist, who acted as an important agent of the true God, was not accepted by this generation. The excuse given is that John was an ascetic, refusing to eat and drink. He was accused of having a demon. The Son of Man, however, did eat and drink so the ascetic label would not work on him. But instead of being generally accepted in his ministry, he was likewise rejected. The excuse given is that the Son of Man made himself a friend of the unrighteous, with whom Jesus shared table fellowship. In describing himself as the Son of Man, Jesus both 
compares himself with another human prophet, John, and indicates that he is one who has suffered rejection. Obviously, the rejected Son of Man will be an ongoing theme in Matthew to where he is rejected, suffer, and be killed. For Matthew, the rejection of the Son of Man is clearly portrayed early in his gospel. Now, some have suggested that the phrase, the Son of Man came, indicates that the Son of Man came down from heaven. And those who argue this point suggest that the imagery of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 as a figure who comes on the clouds is a further indicator of this pre-existent status. But the suggestion that the Son of Man coming refers to one who pre-existed in heaven and came to earth seems unlikely. Jesus parallels in this passage the experience of the Son of Man with that of John the Baptist, who is also described as having come, using the very same verb to describe both figures, the verb ilthen, which comes from erkome, in portraying both John and Jesus as having come, Matthew seems to regard both persons in light of the typical prophetic terminology having come in light of their commissioning for a mission. Now, I would be embarrassed if I failed to note the phrase at the end of chapter 11 and verse 19, where Jesus comments that, quote, Wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. End quote. This is one of the many indicators within Matthew to demonstrate that he possesses a wisdom Christology, which is the understanding about Jesus that portrays him in terms of the personified Lady Wisdom. Wisdom, as it is portrayed in the book of Proverbs, is a personification of God's wise interaction with and instruction to his creation. Although this is not known by many, it was not uncommon in Second Temple Judaism to portray actual human beings as, in some sense, the human embodiment of Lady Wisdom. You can see this in the Biblical Book of Proverbs, in the Deuterocanonical book of Sirach, and in the writings of Philo Judaeus. You can also see this theology adopted by many writers in the New Testament, such as Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, and of course, as we have seen, Matthew. Just so that we are clear, the portrayal of a human being as the embodiment of wisdom is not incarnation in the sense of the latter church councils. This is not about God taking on flesh or God becoming a human being. Wisdom is a personification of one of God's attributes. And a personification is not an actual person alongside God.
that would be to misunderstand what a personification actually is. So for Matthew to portray Jesus in terms of wisdom is not to ascribe a pre-existent status to Jesus, not a literal pre-existent status. It is, rather, to indicate that wisdom, that is, God's wise interaction with and instruction to his creation, can now be found in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it is the Son of Man who acts as wisdom's embodiment. For Matthew says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus speaks of the Son of Man doing deeds, the Son of Man being rejected, but ultimately it is wisdom vindicated by her deeds. The Son of Man, the human agent of God, is depicted here as speaking for wisdom, to the point where the actions of the Son of Man are regarded precisely as the actions of Lady Wisdom, who will be vindicated by her deeds. So it is interesting, in my opinion, to note how Son of Man Christology can overlap Wisdom Christology and Matthew, just as Son of Man Christology overlaps Son of God Christology in Mark. The two are not one and the same, but it's interesting to see how these evangelists, these gospel writers, can take these titles and overlap them in various verses. So that's enough about Matthew's Wisdom Christology and how it overlaps his Son of Man Christology. Let's move on to another passage. Our third point today is the Son of Man who is greater than Jonah and Solomon. I'm going to read a passage out of Matthew chapter 12. Let's start in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 42. This passage offers a lot of similarities to our previous section where the Son of Man is likened to another prophetic figure. In the former passage, the Son of Man was a rejected figure like the prophet John the Baptist. In this passage, the Son of Man is compared to the prophet Jonah. 
this is significant because Matthew seems insistent upon portraying for his readers the Son of Man in terms of other human prophets, which seems logical in my estimation because Son of Man implies a human being, a member of the human race. And what appears from hindsight to be a prediction of the Son of Man's rejection unto death, from the perspective of the narrative, Jesus is offering a riddle about the looming fate of the Son of Man. As a veiled reference to the coming death of the Son of Man, this passage indicates that, as we expected with the common definition of Son of Man, this figure is mortal. This figure is capable of dying. Without any further qualification, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. That is the regular place of burial for the deceased. The Son of Man is not an immortal figure. It is only after he is raised from the dead by God that the Son of Man is exalted to immortality. So while Matthew compares the Son of Man with the human prophet Jonah, he also depicts the Son of Man as one who is truly mortal. Now this passage continues by insisting that something greater than Jonah is here. The following verse discusses the former King Solomon and it says that something greater than Solomon is here. What is it about the Son of Man that makes him greater than Jonah and Solomon? Of course, some have argued that only God is greater than human beings, like Jonah and Solomon. So this phrase, they argue, indicates that Matthew really believed that Jesus was God in the flesh. Well, it is true that God is greater than human beings, especially human beings like Jonah and Solomon. But is this the only answer that we can give to this passage? I think that it would be prudent to focus on the title Son of Man, which is the manner in which Matthew has framed this passage for his readers to consider. It is the Son of Man who is greater than the prophet Jonah and the former King Solomon. That is, it is Jesus in his capacity as a human being that is greater than Jonah and Solomon. What is it about the Son of Man that makes him greater than all of these important human beings within the history of Israel? If we note the context of our present passage, the Son of Man is, as I mentioned, making a veiled prediction of his death, which naturally follows after being rejected and suffering. Jesus dies after being rejected and suffering at the hands of those to whom he has been handed over. In other words, the context of the Son of Man is that of a rejected and killed Son of Man. For Matthew, the narrative has not yet reached the point 
where Jesus is going to repeatedly tell his disciples that the Son of Man is to be handed over to suffer and be killed as part of the messianic vocation. For the gospel writers, the Messiah is not just the king of the kingdom of God, God's anointed king. He is also someone to be rejected and killed. The understanding that the Messiah is someone to be handed over and killed begins in Matthew chapter 16, four chapters after our current passage. In Matthew chapter 16, we have a parallel to the confession of Peter that we observed in Mark's gospel. That is back in Mark chapter 8, but in Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 16. But this confession is arranged in terms of whom do people say that the Son of Man is. It is the Son of Man who is regarded correctly by Peter to be the Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. So the Son of Man is the anointed king, the Messiah. And of course, that Son of Man as Messiah is the one that is revealed explicitly to the disciples who is to be handed over, who is to suffer, and who is to die. Now that we have this fact squarely in place, we can return to the passage in Matthew 12 where the Son of Man is regarded as greater than Jonah and Solomon. At this point in the narrative, it has not been revealed that the Son of Man is the Messiah, the anointed King of the Kingdom of God. The veiled prediction of the Son of Man's death is just that. It's veiled. The destiny of the Son of Man is hinted at. And the destiny of this person's death is bound up in the vocation of the Messiah, the Christ. For Matthew's Gospel, it seems clear that the Son of Man is one and the same as the Messiah. And the Messianic King surely outranks the prophet Jonah and King Solomon. The Son of Man does not have to be God in order to outrank Jonah and Solomon. For the Messiah was to be the highest of the kings of the earth. You can see that in Psalm 89. The Son of Man, who is a mortal human being, is quite capable of being greater than Jonah and Solomon in the theology of the evangelist Matthew. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Matthew, which uses Mark as a source, continues to portray Jesus Christ with the important title, Son of Man. And Matthew includes some Son of Man sayings to which Mark did not have access. We noted that the Son of Man represents the lives of his human followers, who will face hardship and rejection. In doing so, the Son of Man acts as a representative human being for his disciples. We further noted that the Son of Man's career is characterized by rejection, not unlike the career of John the Baptist, and both are regarded as prophets of the true God. 
Matthew also indicates that the Son of Man is the human embodiment of the personified Lady Wisdom, which is a high accolade to give to Jesus. But it is nevertheless consistent with a Son of Man, that is, human, Christological portrayal. We also observed that the Son of Man is a mortal figure in Matthew, one who dies and is buried. The true God, the Father, raises the Son of Man from the dead at the climax of Matthew's Gospel. As the Son of Man, who is also the Messiah, he ranks higher than Jonah and Solomon. Thus far, Matthew has consistently portrayed the Son of Man as a human agent of God the Father. Although Matthew contains a number of Son of Man sayings that are not found in Mark, Matthew's portrayal is consistent with what we can see in the Gospel of Mark. Even with Matthew's insistence that the Son of Man is the embodiment of wisdom, this is consistent with an understanding that the Son of Man is a human being. Like Mark, the Gospel of Matthew understands the Son of Man in terms best described as high human Christology, rather than a Trinitarian or an angelic Christology. Join us next week as we continue to study the Gospel of Matthew in regard to its portrayal of Jesus as the Son of Man. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link to donate. Thank you so much for joining us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.